This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors. That's climate action now. This Prime Minister does not like scrutiny. The Labor Party is clearly embarrassed. This is a Prime Minister who cannot stand up for integrity. How good is Australia? Here, here. Those opposite are all smear and no idea. And we are back. Welcome to the party room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RN Drive. And I'm Fran Kelly from RN Breakfast. And it's great to be back talking with you, PK. But boy, it's been a terrible summer for so many people, especially along the East Coast, but not only on the East Coast of Australia with the fires. You know, I'm down here at the moment on that south coast of New South Wales, actually. In fact, I'm sitting in a fish and ship shop right now in Batemans Bay, PK. And I've been driving around, talking to people, looking at the impact of these fires on the landscape, which was incredible to see firsthand, but also on the people. I mean, it's just devastating. Well, here's some of the local voices from the south coast of New South Wales who we've heard from over the summer. The ferocity of it was pretty huge, just the the noise um, and the heat that came before it. We had fires north, we had fires south and we had fires to the west of it. Absolutely frightening. You just don't know what to do. You don't know whether to stay or to leave. I'm lucky. Six of my neighbours aren't. Um, one of them are at best. Bye. It's always stressful. I want to make sure my family's safe, but I've also signed up to do a job, uh, even though it is volunteer. Now, Fran, what are they saying about the rebuilding, their fears and also the government's response? Yeah, well, they're not up to the rebuilding in a way. I mean, in a way, many of them don't have to say anything. You can see it on their faces. They're exhausted. They're, they're sad. Uh, they're traumatised. You know, they're wrung out. And they're anxious, a lot of them, too. That's what struck me, because they're still on the alert. It's not over down here. I'm at Batemans Bay, as I mentioned, and just down south over the next couple of days. They're on high fire alert. They're worried about a couple of fires flaring up again. So, you know, they're still stuck in that mode. And I, I interviewed Andrew Constance. A lot of people would have heard him in the few weeks since he's the local state member down here. And he himself, on the night of the fires, the day of the fires, had to defend his house. He's clearly, you know, emotionally affected by by everything that's happened. Um, but he just said, look, people are in recovery here. It's, it's really a bit early about talking about rebuilding, even though those conversations have to start happening. That's right. And things really went off the rails, Fran, because this has become not just an emergency bushfire story, as it's traditionally been. This story has so many layers, as I said, but it's really become quite a political story, a policy story. There are many of those layers, too. And, of course, the Prime Minister toured the South Coast at the height of the bushfire crisis there. He really received a mixed... Uh, welcome from the locals who who ha- were clearly frustrated after such a difficult summer for them and felt like the government's response or the Prime Minister's response was inadequate. He's really had a difficult time just responding to this, hasn't he, Fran? Well, he hasn't responded well. He's had a difficult time because he was behind the eight ball from the start because he went on holiday to Hawaii, PK. He shouldn't have done that. He was warned. His government was warned. Everyone was warned this was going to be a terrible fire season. There were already parts of this, of Australia burning when he left. Then there was a whole schmozzle about his office tr- trying to sort of hide where he'd been. The fact that he went to Hawaii for a holiday offshore and didn't holiday in the country 
in some areas which were already doing it tough. People didn't like it. Um, they thought it was wrong. It was wrong tactically and strategically, and the way the, the PM's office handled it was wrong. So when he came back, he was behind the eight ball. He's been trying to play catch-up ever since. That that visit to Cabago a few days after the fires swept through there, and I went to Cabago yesterday. I mean, that town was really ravaged by the fires, and that community is really pulling together. But... You know, they, they really, he really copped it in Cabago, and I suppose in his mind, you know, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't because he was getting flack for, for not talking to people, not reaching out, not being human. And, and in Cabago, some of the locals told me they didn't like the way he got abused when he came here and they didn't came there and they didn't agree with that. But others said, you know, what was he doing? Arriving days after the fire, empty-handed effectively. Even if he'd come with a truckload of water, even if he'd come with three generators, but to just come in, shake hands, and some of them felt, you know, just for a pick fact, it was badly, badly judged. And his responses in those first couple of weeks were just a bit off, really, all the way through. So I think he's been playing catch-up, and, and some of the the policy measures he's announcing and the way he's talking about it now, I think, are very much to try and, you know, reposition himself as a bloke who only looks forward and looks at solutions, and he's trying to really get the focus off Scott Morrison and the human response, which was found lacking. That's right. And I think there was a repositioning on some of these issues because the Prime Minister sat down, he did that interview with David Spears and, and actually you know, conceded that he'd made the wrong call on the Hawaii trip, for instance. There was some conceding. And yet this week, we're recording this on a Thursday morning, he's given his significant first major speech of the year. And there I felt he was very defensive, Fran, about, you know, I, th I felt like it was a different tone again. We, we saw the sort of mea culpa a couple of weeks ago from Scott Morrison, and now there's a defensiveness again about the government's response on these issues because it's raised issues around, you know, our, our response around climate change, international efforts, our contribution, coal. All of these issues have become very much front and centre now, and they're not just issues being discussed by a small group of people, but they became very mainstream. And in that speech, he was kind of defensive of the government's policies again, you know, highlighting the flaws of the Paris Agreement, arguing yes. essentially it, it endorses massive increases in emissions from some of the world's largest and growing economies. Uh, also, essentially rejecting calls to increase Australia's climate targets in the wake of the bushfires. So this was again, a different tone. I wonder what's your analysis of why the Prime Minister has made that call? What, what's he, what room is he reading to say well, what he did? I don't know. It was an interesting move backwards. He took a step backwards, it felt to me, because he had been on the record saying, that, you know, their emissions policy, their climate policies would evolve. We've seen no evolution of that except away from any recognition that Australia's efforts are not going to be good enough when it comes to emissions. And that's not me saying that. That's not his political opponent saying that. That's all the scientists who are judging the different commitments from different countries saying, if we stick at this level of commitments that Paris has for 2030 and heading towards 2050, we are not going to get there. We're heading for an increase of three degrees. That's going to, you know, that, if we think these fires are bad, three degrees is another universe altogether. So yesterday, the Prime Minister was back in defensive mode, 
even denial mode to some degree. On the one hand, he says there's no dispute about the need to take action on climate change, and the other hand, he's, as you said, starting to, you know, criticise or raise doubts about the Paris Agreement, saying it endorses massive increases by countries like India and China, saying the only thing that matters is the cumulative impact of all countries. In other words, you know, Australia can't do it on its own. These are, in a way, red herrings. Of course Australia can't do it on its own. But if we stay committed to 26 to 28 per cent by 2030, forget even bringing forward the Kyoto credits, all of that. You know, it is not enough. And the Prime Minister is saying he's talking about climate action, but what he's actually talking about now is action on adaptation. That's talking about hazard reduction. It's talking about building dams. It's talking about investing in new technologies. It's not actually talking about an energy policy that is going to do anything in the immediate term to start bringing emissions down even further. So he really hasn't advanced the government's um, policy moves there much further, and I'm sure we'll talk about this with David Spears, except his big statement or slogan, I suppose, and it's the same coming from the Energy Minister, Angus, Campbell, Angus Taylor, is that um, technology will be the answer to this. The PM's phrase is, it'll be technology, not taxes and targets, that will drive us towards lower emissions. That is true, but you're not going to get that unless you see a massive investment and leadership and policy and resourcing from the federal government on new technologies, and even that isn't immediate. So there's things we've got to take, steps we should be taking now. We should have taken them a long time ago, and still the PM is resisting. Yeah, there's been a clear change in the language about, about you know, how to respond and this acknowledgement that intense drought and severe bushfires is becoming the new normal. Let's just, let's just listen to the way he framed it at the press club. We also must look further ahead and prepare for and adapt to the environment and the climate we are going to be living in and acknowledging what that is. This summer is the latest chapter in the often harsh realities of living in this amazing continent. Building our national resilience means building our ability to resist, absorb, accommodate, recover and transform in the face of such events. And this includes the effects of longer, hotter, drier summers. Practical action on mitigation through reduced emissions needs to go hand in hand with practical action on climate resilience and adaptation. And that's that word, Fran. We're going to hear a lot of it, adaptation. So it's well, it's all about true. The we do need to adapt, but adaptation is only one side of the ledger. As the PM said there, it has to be hand-in-hand hand with mitigation, bringing emissions down, and that's still where our government's policy settings are lacking. Business has been telling the government that for a long time, so have the scientists, so have a lot of people, um, but the government's refusing to do more on that front. Now, they are going to have a statement about technologies and, and action on that. It's going to have to be um, a pretty major investment, I think, to make any difference in any real um, practical time frame. We're also apparently going to get some kind of policy from the government on electric vehicles. Now, that'll be interesting politically, given what the gov how the government savaged Labor's policy on electric vehicles during the election campaign. Remember that? That oh, Labor's I trying to forget. steal your weekend? <laughs> so that'll be interesting to look forward to. Yeah, that's right. And look, I love the sounds of the fish and ship shop, I've got to say. This is my favourite party room ever, Fran and a fish and ship shop. It's peak time. They're about to flood in here, I'm sure, to organise uh, to all look, of the special just... of the day, which is Grenadier today, actually. <laughs> I'm so glad you've clarified that. I just wouldn't mind some chips right now or, you know, some sort of um, sausage roll would be good. Um, look, 
He also said at, the, at this press club that he's working on agreements with individual states and territories aimed at keeping our power bills down and also offering reliable energy sources. And, look, I listened religiously to RM Breakfast, Fran. I heard you say, hmm, sounds a bit like the... Uh, National energy guarantee, but on a state-by-state basis. Is that your is that your sort of read of what's going on here? Well, it's hard to know because it didn't actually include that that um, measure of getting emissions down. But why would he be doing it if we already have reliability standards in place? We already have um, price. Um, imperatives in place, trying to get price caps on things. So it's the emissions that's missing. It'll be interesting to see what these deals are. He tries to strike with the states and how many of the states are interested in playing ball unless the federal government is prepared in bringing in some real energy policies that provide a real mechanism and signal to business and all of us really about reducing our emissions. It's hard to see how we can make a national effort on that that makes a real difference without there being some degree of change, if not pain, attack. And so far, the federal government hasn't been prepared to inflict any of that. So he's got quite a bit on his plate. There's coronavirus, there's the bushfire response and climate change and, of course, the sports rorts. We're going to get into it with our next guest. <laughs> David Spears, the new host of Insiders. Welcome well, to the ABC officially now and, of course, to the party room. Well, I've been here before in the party room, yes, but never as part of the family. No. How does it feel to be family? I don't know. Am I the... Crazy cousin at the party room, or where do no, I fit in? No, you're like, hey, bro, you're an official brother, and we're official brothers and sisters. Am I the crazy? Uh, you're the crazy uncle who oh, yeah, says okay. weird things yeah, at the yeah. sort of barbecue. No, you're not that person, which is why you're here. Thank God. Um, what a summer! Yeah, I, I don't know about you guys with the party room and your various shows, but I know for me, I've been itching to get on air because there's been so yeah. much going on, and so much of it has a political consequence to it. The fires, obviously the Bridget McKenzie story, we've got coronavirus now as well. So, you know, heaps going on. I think it's meant for all of us who follow politics uh, that we haven't really been able to turn our eyes away for weeks and weeks. You're right. I've been itching to get on. It's been it's been weird not being a part of it. But then, you know, the story's not us. The story is the people here coping with it mm. down the south coast of New South Wales, where I am, and in Victoria and Queensland. But there's been a real sense, David, ever since the Prime Minister went on holiday to Hawaii, that Scott Morrison's, well, I've sensed, been playing catch-up on this, on this catastrophe, really. And I wonder what you thought of his press club address this week, because that was billed as a reset. Was it, was it the reset you were expecting? Uh, well, no, and I'll come back to that. But you're right, the Hawaii holiday really was the start of the mess for Scott Morrison. He got off on the wrong foot. He was just seen to be completely disinterested uh, in this crisis that was gathering, that was unfolding. Uh, and that really cut through. This was no bubble issue or Twitter uh, obsession. No. This was noticed by... All Australians. And they saw, I think, Scott Morrison in a completely different light to how we saw him through much of last year after his election win. This guy who had a you know, magic political touch. It just evaporated, didn't it, from that moment on. Mm. And then it was compounded by you know, his clumsy interactions with people in, in Cabago and elsewhere, that social media post that looked like it was promoting the Liberal Party's response to all of this. And on and on it went, you know, blaming the states, uh, d- delays in calling out defence and so on. Really... And just on a human level too, David, I mean, he seemed to sort of just just misfire. That's right. The guy campaigning last year had a terrific common touch and that just seemed to disappear uh, through this it crisis. It really did. And look, normally, natural disasters, big crises like this, we see it with state premiers, they can really show their leadership, they can shine, 
That didn't happen mm. uh, for Scott Morrison. It was quite mm. the opposite. Look, the press club address, I don't think, w- managed to reset. Uh, I think he dug, d- doubled down, dug in, re-emphasised really the lines that we've heard for the last few weeks on both uh, the bushfires and on uh, the Bridget McKenzie saga. With climate change, you know, he's not about to increase the targets. That's clear. Uh, He's once again reverted to saying the states need to do more to tap the gas. This is something Coalition uh, has been arguing for, what, a decade or more. I'm not sure if it's going to be able to convince the states to do more than they are when it comes to gas. He's right to focus on the need for adaptation. I think fair enough. And look, he's right to focus on the need to use more gas too, I think. Uh, But I, 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 I don't get the sense that he's reacting and addressing this growing anger that's there about climate change. But David, nor is he doing any evolving on climate policy and emissions policy, which when you interviewed him a couple of weeks ago, that was a line he said there will be uh, evolving there, and it's not evolved, has it? Well, it's evolved in the sense of a greater emphasis on the adaptation and resilience side of things. Uh, Look, perhaps evolving also means not using the carryover credits if we get to that point, but when it comes to that headline target or indeed any sort of new mechanism to achieve that target, no, it's not changing one bit. And how about tone? Because Mm. when you interviewed him, it had that sort of tone of regret, mere Mm. culpa. Mm. Okay, didn't get get it right. And yet there was a defensiveness and a sort of fire of almost, you know, I'm going to go there. He seemed almost angry when he was asked about things yesterday. I I agree with that. I think that's right. I think think a few weeks ago when he was absolutely copping it, there was a tone of regret, at least around the Hawaii holiday and some of the interactions Mm. in, in, in the bushfire zones. But yesterday, I think the time for regret has gone. I think that's done with. This is a defiant PM. We know Scott Morrison is not someone who concedes error at all. Uh, uh, and, and I don't think we're going to hear him speak in those tones of regret again. I wonder how that will work out for him, though, David, because people are still incredibly grumpy about all of this. Look, they are. I don't sense within the coalition, and I'm keen to hear what you both uh, are picking up, but I don't sense that he is under a great deal of pressure internally, though, to do uh, a whole lot more on climate change. I think there's a fair bit of consensus that they would look... It wouldn't be credible for them to shift dramatically when it comes to the target, Uh, and there's a fair bit of consensus they still need to keep faith with those quiet Australians who are worried about making Australia a less competitive place if we go too far on this issue. Sure. But, but maybe not shifting, except what's required now is perhaps a gearing up of the, of the investment, of the effort. I mean, the PM said in that speech this week that, you know, action on climate change and reduction of tar- on emissions will be driven by technology, not taxes and targets. But for that to be um, fulfilled, really, it's going to have to be an almighty investment in new technologies, isn't it? I know we're going to get a statement next month, I think he said. Uh, that's going to have to be accompanied by, uh, I would think, quite a massive investment in driving research and development, speeding up, you know, hydrogen, which is the great white hope, or the other new technologies, because Mm. without that, it's just lip service. There's hydrogen, there's batteries, there's carbon capture and storage, that thing with... Carbon capture and storage. How many years (laughs) have we been hearing about that? But you're right. It'll either need investment or some incentives, some real incentives to... But on uh, a big scale, I think. On a big scale, I I agree. I don't know if we're going to see that, and certainly uh, the government's... I don't think we might come to this. I don't think it's going to blow the budget.
budget over this or anything else uh, right now, the budget surplus, that is. The other line he used in the press club speech that I thought was kind of interesting was that he's going to have bilateral agreements negotiated with the states to deal with both reliability of energy supply and emissions. Mm, Fran and I touched on that in our beginning Mm. chat. It's, Fran actually said it on our breakfast. Is, is that like a neg state by state? It sounds a little like they're never going to call it uh, a neg. That's uh, that's dead, of course. But Malcolm uh, Turnbull's little baby. I mean, for all its complexity, what was the neg? It was it was requirements to in, improve reliability and bring down emissions, uh, at region by region or power company by power company. This. Kind of sounds a bit similar. We'll see, uh, you know, what uh, Angus Taylor ends up negotiating, whether there is any sort of binding commitment on the states to reduce emissions. But I do think they need a more credible path to meet and beat the target, as they keep saying they're going to. Um, And right now, there really isn't that mechanism in place. Now, the other big question from journalists at the press club, and it's been the big question full stop, and you've already alluded to it, let's Mm. get into it, is the sports grant saga. It's just such an incredibly embarrassing story for the Mm. government, and it is such a waste of taxpayers' money. It is outrageous. Uh, David, Senator Bridget McKenzie was a notable absence from the press club address because there's an investigation right now from the PM&C secretary, Philip Gagens. Uh, Let's hear Scott Morrison responding to questions on this. Well, I just reject the premise of the question. That's, that's not why we did it. So why did you do it? To support local communities and the sporting infrastructure that they need to, to bond together, to co- be cohesive and ensure that girls didn't have to change out the back of the shed. That's why we did it. Do you, you, you can have an editorial on it if you like, and you're welcome to that, but that's not why I did it and that's not why the government did it. Oh, it well, was quite that's sort response. of dodging the question, isn't it? I think we should have an editorial on it right now because um, the PM there tried to dress it up as a as a worthy scheme. Yes, it was, no doubt about that, but it's how that scheme was used and how some of these clubs and associations were used. And, you know, the Auditor-General said it up front. There was a distributional bias, read political bias. We've now seen proof of that with some of the lists that have been leaked. There's no getting around the fact that this scheme was rorted for political impact and political benefit to the coalition. And this line, uh, this talking point that we're just helping girls who are at the moment having to get changed behind the sheds, people are seeing through this line, I'm sure, just as they're seeing through the other line that's been used over and over again, that no rules were broken. The point here isn't, sure, we want girls to have adequate change rooms at every sporting club. The point is... Uh, There was a list of worthy recipients drawn up by the experts at Sport Australia and that was largely ignored in favour of political pork barrelling. Colour-coded. Colour-coded, no less, seat by seat. This is not something that the government is even willing to acknowledge. There was anything wrong here. And, in fact, the Prime Minister went went further, defending the fact that politicians are in touch with communities and, uh, you know, are are really well-placed to make these sorts of decisions on where grants should go. Well, hang on, that's not how this scheme was drawn up. It certainly wasn't. No. and That's now... why you have Sports Australia managing it, because they're managing it. And if you're just sure, politicians are in, local members are in a good position to know what's worthy and what's not. Pass those recommendations on. They're also in a position, it. Fran, to uh, make decisions in their own political interest, and that exactly. is what happened here. So what happens, OK, ramifications-wise, there is this report, and we're recording this on a Thursday morning, the mm. PM is likely to get it in the next couple of days. You'd it's taking so. a while, it's though, isn't it? It's taking a while. <laughs> Look, Phil looking not just at whether she's breached the code, but it seems he's 
running the ruler over the whole Auditor General's report. I don't know why he needs to. But How can this take so long? Well, it's a, you know, a fairly detailed report. But the point is we've had that done. The Auditor General is the independent body that's done that and presented the report. I don't know why you need the head of the department to run the ruler over all of that. Again. So what happens to Bridget McKenzie? She's the deputy leader of the Nationals, just to mm. give our, our listeners some scope. This is a very senior role. She's mm. a cabinet minister. Uh, it's worthy to mention she's also uh, one of the you know female cabinet uh, yep. members, and that matters because the government mm. knows it has to get that right too. So uh, the Prime Minister can't just dump her because she's a national and they're in coalition government with the nationals and, of course, it has all sorts of implications for his government. How does he manage it? Well, by the time you're listening to this, uh, <laughs> she could may have well be it. gone. Uh, look, I, I can't see her surviving till uh, Parliament resumes next week, that's for sure, but it is complicated by the very facts you point out there. She's elected as the Deputy Nationals Leader. The nationals have this tradition of not booting out anyone, it seems. They do it in a gentlemanly way, so to speak, where you, you wait for the leader to tap the mat before a new one comes in. Um, but, you know, you talk to any national, they know this is bad, bad news. There's not a lot of love, I would say, within the nationals for Bridget McKenzie to stay, but Michael McCormack can't really chance his arm and move against her. Um, you're right, uh, have, losing a woman from Cabinet is a bit of an issue there. I don't think that's going to be a dominant issue at the end of the day. Um, look, I think it's pretty clear that many in Cabinet want her gone, um, but the mechanism of making that happen, well, it really just relies now on this Phil Gation's report. Once that is presented, uh, well, then Scott Morrison and Michael McCormack will have to sit down and reach a decision, uh, and that's, that's what will happen. But, David, is there another agenda running here? I mean, what about these suggestions? And there's been more and more leaks coming out and suggestions, and we're still waiting for sort of concrete proof, I suppose, um, that the Prime Minister's office was involved in drawing up this list that Bridget McKenzie's office um, enacted. Is that... Do we have any evidence of that yet? The Prime Minister was very clear yesterday. He said his office only passed on representations to Bridget McKenzie's office, nothing more, nothing less. Look, I think most people uh, looking at this would suspect... Uh, that there was some wider involvement, that it's it's hard to believe Bridget McKenzie and her one or two staffers uh, decided all in their lonesome to draw up a hit list of marginal seats they wanted to throw the money at and target and that exactly how much would go. That the Morrison up. government, all on their own. Exactly. Uh, but, um, look, the Prime Minister is adamant that the only role his office played was in passing on uh, representations from individual MPs, and that's what they do with all of these things. Um, look, I don't know if there is the hard evidence there just yet to show that there was anything more than that in terms of the involvement of the Prime Minister's office or the Liberal Party um, a director. Uh, but, uh, look, watch this space. Who knows? I mean, Bridget McKenzie may have you know something up her sleeve if she is treated poorly here and decides to uh, uh, seek some retribution. Who knows? That's another factor in the mix. It really does smack, though, doesn't it, of a last-ditch desperate effort of a government that was really didn't think it would win the election, would be in, in government next time, so they wouldn't have to bear the consequences of this. Um, but they were just trying to minimise their losses and, and maybe give them a shot at hanging in there. And, I'll tell you an you interesting know, point they're on that. back. And it, you know, as many have pointed out, it's not the first time this has happened. Um, you know, speaking to someone who was around at the time, in the dying months of the Howard government back in 2007... Uh, even more money was thrown around at sporting clubs and other organisations. You know, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. Kevin Rudd at the time 
uh, didn't raise uh, a murmur about this, just as he backed in the income tax cuts and everything else, because he was, he was very focused on winning that 2007 election. Uh, he just uh, you know, ticked a lot of it. When they got into government in 2007, uh, Labor that is, they then had to scramble around and find out how to fund all these things. So yeah. it's not, it's happened before. Look, before we let you go, David, the other emergency facing Scott Morrison is, of course, coronavirus. And this is, if you, you know, walk down yeah. the streets of Melbourne, Sydney, Darwin, this is the thing people are talking about. This is the, you know, the barbecue stopper yeah. of conversation. Everybody is concerned yeah. about this, as they as they should be. Uh, we have confirmed cases in Australia. It may may grow yeah. as we're recording on a Thursday morning, so I'm not going to quote the number, but it's, it's you know, it's, yeah. it's for us, it's a big issue. What do you make of the federal government's response to this? Now we have this uh, evacuation that's planned for Christmas yep. Island, which is, you know, quite it, look, contentious. It, yeah, I, I have some sympathy with how the government's been handling this. It's not easy. Uh, and, you know, the world is a different place. Our interactions with China are different to SARS, MERS, you know, some of these previous things we've had. Other countries have been trying to evacuate. I think it's understandable that the um, the that Australia would want to as well. I know there's criticism uh, of sending them to Christmas Island. Um, I don't know. I... I'm yet to see a better alternative here. I do think there'd be great risk in just bringing them into Sydney or Melbourne. Um, you know, there'd, there'd be backlash over that. So what do they do? Yes, Christmas Island is a hell of a long way away and it seems like a very isolated place to put them. Uh, but, you know, they're not there forever. It's not like they're asylum seekers. Uh, it's a two-week quarantine. Um, so, look, I think there's more to come on this, though. British Airways, as you would have seen, banning flights uh, to and from mainland China. Qantas mm. is monitoring this. If we get to that point... Think of the economic impact that's going to have tourism, students at the start of this year. If we're not flying in and out of China at all, and we're not at that point yet, uh, but yes, then the economic consequence to Australia starts to become quite serious. David, you will be a regular in our podcast. Can't of course, wait. I was hoping you'd say that. Hey, David, thanks for coming in. Thanks, guys. Well, the bells are ringing. Let's go into question time. Now, Kerry says in recent times, politicians have increasingly adopted interview tactics that appear to be designed to expressly avoid answering questions. They talk over the interviewer. They waffle on. They give long-winded answers. Too many interviewers seem unable to deal with these tactics. What can be done to address this? And Kerry, you make a very good point. Uh, some of them are better at it than others, as in for their own interests. They know, actually, as you know, Fran, that you probably got, I don't know, eight minutes, six minutes, ten yeah, minutes. They know, and right? if they just keep going, repeating their thing that they think's a winner for seven minutes before you can get in, then they've won because they know you need to get to the news or something. Uh, yes, you need to be on your game. It is not easy. It is a very tricky thing to do. It's really frustrating and it's been frustrating for a long time now and uh, there was a period where I thought, well, they're going to get it. They're going to they're gonna get the message that I get from listeners all the time, you know, that they just hate this behaviour from politicians. And I thought, oh, well, the politicians will, you know, they'll ameliorate this, they'll change their behaviour because they see that people hate it so much, but they're not. It's just getting worse, if anything. And yes, the talking long, yes, the talking over you, yes, the saying, if you just let me finish, Fran, so, you know, making you look rude... Um, so we've just got to get better. I'm not a fan of switching off the mic, to be honest, because I think these people should be accountable. I mean, there are paid elected representatives. They should be pushed for answers and they should give answers. So I think you and I and others 
you know, are better engaged trying to work out ways to push them to answer rather than just turn off the mic. But certainly, listeners hate it. Um, I think more and more of us, PK, are using phrases like, let me ask that question again, or you still haven't answered the question, or the people listening are still waiting for an answer, Minister, and try and bring to bear the, the sort of the power um, and the force of the audience listening. So it's not just you asking the question, but they are reminded that it's the whole audience waiting for an answer. This is not the first time a question like this has been asked. So the fact that we get so many questions about this says, I think, speaks volumes about the frustration among ordinary Australians just about the, this tactic. It's, you know, I, I think some politicians... You, the point you made, I just want to just go, go to that. I think some politicians have made that assessment. I, I've, some have said to me, look... I agree. Yeah, I know that people hate it. I, I do want to sound like I'm engaging with you when I come on, and I think, well, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you for wanting to sound like it. Let's now do it. So it's, yeah, I, it's I, a I interviewed thing. Darren Chester this week. Um, he's the um, Veterans Affairs Minister, and I got quite a bit of feedback of people appreciating the way he engaged Engaged with the questions. Now, he couldn't answer every question, so it was political questions for him, tricky, difficult political questions about sports rorts and his National Party colleague, um, but he at least went into why he couldn't, and it sounded, it sounded genuine, and people hear that, and they like it. I mean, I just think there's value in it for politicians, and I just wish they'd understand that. Yeah, I wish they would too. Well, Fran, that's it for the party room this week. And of course, that's our first one for 2020. It's going to be a really big year for you and I as we hang out and make this podcast and do the work that we do, including being highly scrutinised by our lovely listeners about exactly how we ask these questions. Yeah, true. The scrutiny is good. Keep our feet to the flame too. Yeah. And Pico, as I sit here in the fish and chip shop in Batemans Bay, I'm pretty confident that the these fires that have been affecting, you know, the Queensland and New South Wales, all down the east coast, eastern seaboard, are really going to be a story that dominates the year because it's not just the politics around energy policy and climate change, it's also the economy. I mean, already the Treasurer has said again this week it's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars just in sharing the cost of the clean-up with state governments. Then there's the, the $2 billion they put together for, you know, the cost of bushfire recovery for businesses and landholders and people. Um, this is going to and then there's the loss to the economy from the businesses that have been um, hard hit by this. You know, they're not going to be bringing in the tax receipts that they have in past years. So this is going to have a massive hit to the economy and the surplus on a whole lot of levels, including the human level. This is going to be a dominant story for the year. So for those of you who've been patiently waiting throughout January uh, as the political and the emergency year started much earlier than anyone would have ever imagined or wanted, we are back. You can email us at the party room at abc.net.au. We love your audio questions or your written questions. We want to deal with them. Please send them. And rate, review and subscribe. Get us talked about, if you like. Let's get more people engaged in these uh, policy and political conversations. Exactly. And also, 2020. Fran, Zoom us up those charts. Do it. Do it for yourself, not just for us. Look, Fran, before we go, it's a really key and fundamental question I've got to ask you because you're in a fish and chip shop. Is it a potato cake or a potato scallop? Ah, well, I come from Adelaide where it's potato fritter. So, oh, hey, it's all different. That is such um, an Adelaide I... answer. <laughs> so it is. So, really, I think the jury's still out. Uh, no, it's a potato cake. See you, Fran. <laughs> See you, PK. 
Hi, I'm Angela Voipierre. And I'm Stephen Stockwell, and we're from the ABC's daily news podcast, The Signal. Every day of the week, we make a new episode for you about one big story in the news. It's the things you need to know and the reasons behind what's happening. This week, we've made episodes about the massive amount of carbon emissions from the bushfires and why the world doesn't count them. We've also taken a look behind containment lines in Wuhan to find out what life is like inside the world's largest quarantine. Make sure you subscribe. There's a new episode out first thing every day in the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.